Definitely. And I think that this is another sign and another impetus to reach a ceasefire deal that, that gives a breathing room to all sides. I mean, it's going to have to have hostages returned from the Hamas side, but it's going to have to be a, a, a ceasefire. They're looking at six weeks at least as a ceasefire. And I just think this pushes that closer and closer to a reality that everyone has to recognize, which is this is not sustainable. Israel is increasingly isolated. Its one benefactor is the Biden administration, which is, as you said in your domestic hour, facing huge blowback in important swing states like Michigan and Arab populations and Muslim populations there. This is just not sustainable. And I think that this, this latest horror show is one more indicator that something has to be done and reach a ceasefire deal on this. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and this is 1A. This week, several countries airdropped about 45 tons of food and medical aid supplies into the besieged Gaza Strip. The donors were Egypt, Jordan, the UAE, Qatar, and France. This comes as the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, known as UNRWA, warned of an immediate imminent famine in Gaza. The last time they were able to deliver food aid was on January 23rd. The agency has since faced a cutoff of aid from the U.S. and other Western donors. Greg, what are the complications of getting aid into Gaza by land? The biggest complication is one that's been a complication for months now since the the beginning of the war, which is that there are only two crossing points by which aid can go into Gaza, and those crossing points have limited capacity. Anything that goes in has to go through a very onerous Israeli inspection, and so that just limits uh, how much can, can cross the border each day. And then on top of that, you have a couple of things that have become issues in recent weeks. Uh, one is that there are thought to be about 200,000 people still in northern Gaza. Of course, most of the population has fled to the south, but still about 10% of Gazans are in the north. They are north of a, a line, a defensive line that Israel has used to bisect the Gaza Strip. Any aid that comes in through the crossing points in the south has to drive through that defensive line, be inspected again, uh, and get to the north, which just adds complications. And then you also have the breakdown in civil order in Gaza, the fact that uh, Hamas, which used to police the territory, can no longer do that in many parts of Gaza. And Israel doesn't have enough troops in the territory, even if it wanted to, to, to sort of handle the policing function. And so more and more you have cases of aid trucks coming in being swarmed by hundreds or thousands of hungry people. Uh, that's what happened with this incident yesterday mm -hmm. where, where so many people were killed is you have hungry, desperate people and no one to provide order in Gaza. And so when trucks come in, uh, they are immediately beset by, by desperate people. So this breakdown in security in Gaza uh, has made it very difficult for aid agencies or private companies to, to bring any supplies into the territory. Well, in an effort to address that, this week USAID announced $53 million in assistance for Gaza. Emily, as we noted, the U.S. has suspended aid to the U.N. agency UNRWA, but is now giving assistance to Gaza directly through USAID. Just very quickly, what's the significance of this? I mean, it shows that the U.S. is sort of siding with Israel on um, criticisms of of, you know, Hamas influence in UNRWA and sort of going the USAID route instead. But the the overall significance is that by all accounts, there is not enough aid making its way into, into Gaza and that the U.S. has played its part in that. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, on Monday, President Biden said he hoped a ceasefire is close between Israel and Hamas that would pause hostilities and allow for the remaining hostages to be released. Well, I hope by the, the beginning of the weekend, I mean, the end of the weekend. At least my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. James, Israel and Hamas both have delegations in Qatar this week, hammering out details of a potential 40-day truce in the run-up to the holy month of Ramadan, which starts on March 10th. Both sides say there's still a big gulf. Just how big is that gulf? You know, these... these these talks are secret, and they're and they're always a big gulf until until there's not and there's a deal. Um, so we don't really know, but what we do know is that there's um, you know there is growing pressure on all sides that something has to change the dynamic that we're in right now. And the, the Biden administration, when President Biden said that he was hopeful that something could be reached by next Monday, which he's backtracked on, clearly he, th there was some. 
uh, movement and the talks that gave him that hope. And he's still saying that um, they expect that it could be a deal before Ramadan, which is only a couple of weeks away. So I actually think that, that there's, there are more signs pointing towards moving towards a ceasefire than not. But again, it's always, you know, darkest right before the dark in the Middle East, so you never know for sure. But again, to my point, uh, I just don't think the current dynamic is sustainable for, for any of the sides. And hmm. uh, so, as President Biden said, hope springs eternal. Well, you, uh, you've also pointed out that President Biden has walked back some of his optimism about ceasefire talks. Quickly, Greg, right before the break, um, tell us what the main sticking points are about the proposals. One issue is the identities of the Palestinian prisoners who would be released in exchange for Israeli hostages, whether or not they're going to be people who have been convicted of murder or other violent offenses. That's one issue. And then there's also a question around what Israel does with its army in Gaza during these six weeks, what areas it withdraws from, does it withdraw, does it not? That's also something that they're negotiating. That's Greg Carlstrom of The Economist. We're also speaking with authors and journalists Emily Tampkin and James Kitfield. Stick with us. There's much more to come after the break. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and this is 1A from WAMU and NPR. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Teaching four-year-olds is a joy for Matt Wallace. Taste of the week. Taste of the week. But like many early educators, he struggles to get by on low wages. We need better pay so that I don't have to rely on the government to have a roof over my head. A new program may help next time on Here and Now. Next time for Here and Now is today at noon on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. Voters in 17 states and territories cast their ballots on Super Tuesday, the biggest primary day of the year. With more than a third of Republican delegates up for grabs, it may be Nikki Haley's last chance to challenge former President Donald Trump. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Join Scott Detrow and me for live special coverage from NPR News. Election 2024. Get closer to the issues. Get closer to your vote. Listen this Tuesday at 7 p.m. on 89.1 WGLT. This is Terrence Jones. For a music break, take the ORAM to Highway 309, our eclectic music format. All lanes are open at WGLT.org. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate, at Progressive.com, not available in California or from all agents. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people, at wtgrantfdn.org. Welcome back. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and this is 1A. We'll get back to the roundup in a moment, but first, Hollywood is revving up for its big night next weekend. Without a doubt, some fan favorites are likely to get snubbed by the Academy, but elsewhere, some indie productions that flew largely under the radar of the masses have seen huge success after winning awards. Next week, we'll talk more about the power of award ceremonies to shape what movies and TV shows get made. We'd love to hear from you. How much do awards determine which movies you choose to see or don't see. Leave us a voicemail at 855-236-1A1A. And who's your money on for an Oscar this year? Our number is 855-236-1212. You can leave us a message also with our app, 1A Vox Pop, and we'll get to all of it on Tuesday. 
All right, back to the international news stories of the week. Last Sunday, active duty U.S. airman Aaron Bushnell, a cyber defense operations specialist, died after setting himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. as a protest against the war in Gaza. Before he set himself alight, he said he would, quote, no longer be complicit in genocide, shouting free Palestine over and over in the moments after he was engulfed in flames. James, the Defense Department and the White House have largely stayed quiet on Bushnell. What has been the reaction to his act of protest? And what can you tell us about the history of protests by men and women in U.S. military uniforms? Well, they're staying quiet because everyone, I think, is quite shocked by this. We haven't seen this before. I mean, I've been covering the military for over 30 years, and, and I've never seen anything like this before. I did some research uh, before the show, and I, I don't think that there's been another case where an active duty military member set him, or him or herself on fire as a, as a form of political protest. There were a couple of cases uh, in 2016 and 2018 where veterans of the military did so uh, out of grievances with the Department of, of Veterans Affairs. But this, to my knowledge, is the first time an active duty troop has actually done this. And uh, it's shocking. I mean, the military has rules against political protests in general, which is, you know, you, you are not supposed to do anything that can be perceived as partisan when you're wearing your uniform. And so this, is, this goes totally against the grain of the U.S. military's ethos, which I think is why everyone is so shocked by it. Uh, it's just been, uh, I mean, I, I was shaking my head. I had never heard anything quite like it. <laughs> That's James Kitfield, who is the author of a book on the military and senior fellow at the Center for the study of the presidency in the Congress. We're also speaking this hour with Greg Karlstrom, author and Middle East correspondent at The Economist, and Emily Tamkin, reporter and author also of a book of her own. For this last section of the Roundup, we want to catch you up on several important stories happening in El Salvador, Argentina, Cuba, Ghana, France. And a reminder, we want to hear from you which stories aren't getting enough attention. Email us at 1A at WAMU.org or leave us a voicemail through our app 1A Vox Pop. So let's get to those political ties between the U.S. and El Salvador. El Salvador's President Nayib Bukele had a cryptic message for American conservatives when he stopped by a major conference just outside Washington this week. Fight for your freedoms. Fight for your rights. The next president of the United States must not only win an election, he must have the vision, the will, and the courage to do whatever it takes. And above all, he must be able to identify the underlying forces that will conspire him, that will conspire against him. That's El Salvador's President Nayib Bukele at the annual summit of the Conservative Political Action Committee, better known as CPAC. He warned of, quote, dark forces that are allegedly taking over the United States. James, Bukele is a controversial figure globally, but he's incredibly popular at home where he's cracked down on violent crime and gangs. His iron-fisted tactics have horrified human rights observers. But actually, Salvadoran migration to the U.S. has dropped since his crackdown, suggesting that his countrymen embrace his law and order approach. So what cause was he encouraging American conservatives to fight for in his speech? The, the, the populist fight against the quote-unquote global elites. Uh, you know, this is part of this bonfire of the populace that we've seen around the world. Um, and it's increasingly uh, uh, defining our own politics here at home. So it's a piece of, you know, this uh, Bukele calls himself the world's coolest dictator. Um, that sounds very much like uh, former President Trump's comment that he'd only be a dictator in the first day of his, uh, the future presidency if he, if he gets to the White House again. And it gets to this, this, you know, this populist uprising against, you know, i.e. global elites, the deep state. We've heard it, you know, ad infinitum before. Uh, but it's a it's a very dangerous uh, it's a very dangerous movement um, because it is it is counter democracy and and there and increasingly people like Mr. Bukele and and to a certain extent President Trump are very upfront about that in their comments and uh, you know it gets it's a piece of Tucker Carlson going over to Hungary and, and lavishing praise on Viktor Orban the authoritarian leader of Hungary or interviewing President Putin and lavishing praise on him. Uh, 
or the House basically cutting off Ukraine as it fights against Russia. There is this this sort of uh, populism from the right uh, that has become a global movement, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's upsetting a lot of democracies. An embrace of right-wing authoritarianism. Well, Argentine President Javier Millet, who's a self-professed admirer of former President Donald Trump, is also at the CPAC conference. He's slated to speak on Saturday. Meanwhile, back in Buenos Aires, many in Argentina are taking to the streets to protest his recent funding cuts to soup kitchens. That's while inflation climbs and the country's poor are at risk of a hunger crisis. Emily, what is behind his funding cuts? I mean, Argentina was in bad economic shape and the funding cuts have have won approval from the International Monetary Fund. Um, But as you say, you know, aid for food is being cut at the same time that inflation is rising and transit tickets are going up and people don't have enough to eat. Um, He also made cuts to the anti-discrimination office. And it's the sort of thing where protest begets protest, right? So we've had reports of protests. Then this week, hundreds of flights were canceled because the air travel workers went on a 24-hour strike because they need better pay. So um, while you know, <laughs> while he's speaking at CPAC, and actually someone should probably make a show of all these far-right figures or right-wing figures around the world, like gathering in, in Washington. You could have Liv's Trust. You could have Bukele. Um, anyway, while that's happening, you know, there's real anger at, at economic conditions and the political response to them. Uh, angry clouds gathering in uh, in Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Republicans in the U.S. are up in arms this week after several House members took a trip to Cuba, which has faced economic sanctions from the U.S. Let's face it, a trade embargo for decades. Two House Democrats, Pramila Jayapal of Washington State and Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, are facing criticism for meeting Cuban officials during their trip. They were part of a group of a dozen members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus who traveled there. Also this week, former U.S. diplomat diplomat Victor Manuel Rocha pleaded guilty to spying for Cuba for more than 40 years. The 73-year-old man will be sentenced in April. He admitted his actions to an undercover FBI agent in 2022. We are talking with the economist Greg Carlson. Carlstrom, author and reporter Emily Tankin, and James Kitfield from Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress. And now to Ghana and West Africa, where the parliament passed a bill making it illegal to identify as LGBTQ+. Anyone convicted of identifying that way could be imprisoned for up to three years, and forming or funding an LGBTQ plus group now has a maximum five-year prison sentence. Ghana's president has not yet signed the bill into law. Greg, what are the chances that this bill will be signed into law? Well, it is a draconian bill, to say the least. Gay sex was already illegal in Ghana prior to this, but as you say, this goes much further in in criminalizing identity, not even just action, but identity. The president has said that he will sign it into law if a majority of people in Ghana support it. He wasn't really clear on, on what would constitute majority support or how he would know that there's majority support. And obviously, there's been a lot of pressure uh, from both within Ghana and from around the world urging him not to sign it into law. Uh, not the only country in Africa in recent years that has passed this sort of legislation. Uganda last year uh, passed a law that criminalizes uh, gay sex up to and including the death penalty as a possible punishment for certain homosexual acts. Uh, You look at polls in sub-Saharan Africa, and and they do find consistently that homophobia is widespread on the continent. Some of that uh, stems out of religious belief. It's It's a very religious part of the world. Some of that comes from opportunistic politicians who have sought to portray homosexuality as a Western import, as as something that has been imposed on their countries by uh, former colonial powers. And and some of it actually stems out of America's own culture war. You've had uh, conservative groups pushing uh, homophobic ideology in, in some countries in Africa. And so all of this has combined to make for a very hostile climate. Hmm. And so quickly, Greg, what would this mean for LGBTQ plus individuals who live in Ghana? I mean, it it means a a climate of fear. Uh, It means that, as you said, even identifying as such could mean years in prison. So you've had uh, groups in Ghana who have said this is going to have incredibly 
dire consequences for them. It's going to mean people who are perhaps already in the closet, people who are perhaps already uh, afraid to to identify because there is a ban on on gay sex and there is a stigma against it, uh, are going to to be even more afraid now. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and this is 1A. And finally to France. On Wednesday, the French Senate voted to enshrine abortion rights in the country's constitution. The language describes abortion as, quote, a guaranteed freedom. The bill still needs approval from both houses and the French parliament. Here's what the French justice minister had to say about the bill. Que les choses soient très claires, le gouvernement n'entend pas créer un droit absolu. Let things be very clear. The government doesn't intend to create an absolute, unlimited, enforceable right. The aim today is to protect women's freedom, not extend it. So, Emily, how likely is it that this bill will pass? Um, well, the passage of the Senate was sort of hailed as, the, as a major victory for the bill because the Senate was seen as the harder of the two houses to get. So, you know, of course, anything could happen, but I think it's looking as though it will. I, I just want to quickly note that in the plain text introduction of this bill, um, the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was cited explicitly. And this was, you know, it's, it's interesting that this is happening the same week as we sort of see politicians here in the United States say, well, of course, we, we won't attack the right to have IVF, but, you know, we, should we really enshrine it in legislation? This was the French saying, we have seen what's happening elsewhere in the world. We know what could come on our own political, you know, what could be coming over our own political horizon. We are going to take legislative steps to protect the right to an abortion in this country. Hmm. So how would it change reproductive health care in France overall, Emily? I mean, the French overwhelmingly support abortion rights, and abortion is legal for any reason through 14 weeks. Um, there are going to be those who say, see, we want to put in a similar ban. It's very different than the American context. Um, and I think, I think essentially the impetus for this was changing was both the fact that abortion rights are under attack in the United States and elsewhere in Europe, um, and that the reality that Marine Le Pen could be elected into office. And so this bill makes abortion a guaranteed freedom mm-hmm. in French law. And sends a message back to um, France's allies on the other side of the Atlantic as well here in Washington. All right, one more France story for the week. French President Emmanuel Macron promised that he would take a swim in the River Seine as part of his efforts to highlight how the river has been cleaned up for the Paris Olympics due to take place this coming summer. But he refrained from pinpointing a date. Fleuve Marne qui auront changé là aussi de visage et d'usage le jour d'après. Et ça, c'est formidable. Ah ben, et comment, ouais Well, he says there that he's not going to give a date, that there's a risk that we will be there watching him. So Macron said said that in exchange with reporters. The French government has spent upwards of $1.5 billion upgrading sewage and stormwater treatment facilities in the Paris region to improve the water quality in the Seine. All right, now we come to my favorite part of the show, which is in the few minutes we have left, I want to hear about the stories that we didn't talk about or the particular stories that you're watching in the week ahead. Greg, to you first. Unfortunately, it's the same story that I've been watching for the past five months, uh, which is the the war in Gaza. Ramadan is coming up in about 10 days. The Biden administration trying to get this hostage deal done before then. The Israeli government threatening that if it doesn't happen, uh, they will go ahead with an offensive in Rafah. I'm not sure either of those things are going to happen, uh, to be honest, in the next 10 days. But that means uh, ongoing conflict and misery in Gaza. And when the holiday comes... Uh, I think an increased risk of of unrest in the West Bank and Jerusalem, perhaps elsewhere in the region as well. And quickly, since you're there in the region, tell us what you're expecting to see in the Red Sea with uh, the Houthis and uh, U.S. and British fighter jets bombing Houthi targets who've been attacking ships in the Red Sea. I think the coalition is going to continue playing this game of whack-a-mole. They're trying to blow up anti-ship missiles and other specific military capabilities the Houthis use to target ships. But Yemen's a big country. These weapons are scattered across a a large swath of territory. It's very difficult to get them all. And unless you do, uh, as long as the Houthis are able to carry out the occasional attack, shippers are going to continue avoiding the sea. They don't have a a very high tolerance for risk. And and so this sort of de facto blockade is going to remain in place. All right, Emily and James, lightning round. Quick, quick thoughts from each of you. 
Emily first. Um, I'm going to be incredibly gauche because it was what popped into head and promote the podcast you mentioned at the top. It's called, it's new. It's called The Election Tricycle. Uh, this year we have elections in the U.S., U.K., and India. So my co-hosts and I um, unpack electoral developments in those countries, though not only in those countries. It's a big year for elections every week. Great. We'll take a listen. James Kitfield, what are you listening to, thinking about? On that theme, I think this presidential election uh, in America this year is going to be unprecedented. And it th- starts with the fact that one of the two major candidates denies ever uh, elections that he's ever lost. And 60% of the Republican Party believe him. That is a setup for some very volatile situations as this election proceeds. All right. Well, that's James Kitfield with the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress, Emily Tampkin, um, who is an author and co-host of Election Tricycle Podcast, and Greg Karlstrom of The Economist. So I just want to leave you now with a bit of music news. Australian artist Tones and I made global music history this week, becoming the first female artist to surpass 3 billion streams on Spotify with her 2019 song Dance Monkey. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer, and Aileen Humphreys is the editor. This program comes to you from WAMU and NPR. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. Have a weekend and a great one. This is 1A. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation for nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. The news isn't always easy to hear. NPR's Daniel Estrin has covered this first month of war and joins us now from Tel Aviv. Hi, Daniel. That's why at Morning Edition, we focus on the facts you need to stay informed and the human connection to every story. The folks on Capitol Hill, some of them aren't even aware of who we are and what we do. We're with you through it all. Listen weekdays to Morning Edition from NPR News. Wake up with Morning Edition, weekday mornings on 89.1 WGLT. Have you ever wondered how you would feel if tomorrow you woke up and public radio was just gone? Oh, man, that would be tough. I think it would be devastating. There's an easy way to feel good about public radio and the financial health of your station. Just support it. Really, do it right now. Call or go online. Your tax-deductible contribution will help ensure public radio isn't going anywhere. Fund public radio for the public good with your contribution at WGLT.org. Support for WGLT comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The CPB's Community Service Grant helps WGLT bring you Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and more programming on which you depend for news, information, and entertainment. Additional support comes from WGLT listeners. This is 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. From the campus of Illinois State University, this is 89.1 WGLT Normal. Part of the NPR Network. Today on The 21st Show, it's Friday and time for our reporter roundtables. In politics, an Illinois judge has ruled President Trump cannot appear on the March primary ballot for his role in inciting the insurrection at the Capitol building. Plus, Illinois U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth has taken on a prominent role in the Democratic response to the IVF decision from the Alabama Supreme Court. But first, local news from the communities of Macomb and Bloomington Normal. We'll talk about a diesel fuel spill affecting a lake in western Illinois and the effect of online classes on enrollment at ISU. And finally, we'll talk with the owner of a central Illinois fitness studio that focuses on pole dancing about her work bringing this activity to the fitness mainstream. I'm Brian Mackey, and that's all coming up today on The 21st Show which is a production of Illinois Public Media. But first, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. 
A key hearing is underway in a criminal case against former President Donald Trump in Florida. The presumptive GOP presidential nominee is fighting charges that he unlawfully withheld and concealed classified documents after he left office. A federal judge will decide whether to grant Trump's request to delay the trial currently scheduled for May. Here's NPR's Greg Allen. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, has pushed back previous deadlines and is considering scheduling a hearing to allow Trump's lawyers to argue that the prosecution by special counsel Jack Smith is politically motivated. The lawyers also are seeking to have the case dismissed because of presidential immunity, a claim now scheduled for arguments in the Supreme Court. The special counsel wants Judge Cannon to dismiss those claims and a motion by Trump to disclose the names of potential witnesses before they testify. Prosecutors say disclosing the names would subject them to potential threats, intimidation, and harassment. With all this, legal experts say there's a good chance the trial will be postponed. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Protesters in Israel have been calling for early elections in the country and for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to step down. In a speech last night, Netanyahu made his case against holding elections now. We have more from NPR's Parvaz. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned against what he called extremist demands for elections, saying that an early vote during the war would, quote, mean defeat for Israel. Netanyahu is trying to avert a potential political crisis around an issue that could bring down his coalition and force new elections, whether to continue exempting ultra-Orthodox Jews from the military draft. He signaled support for enlisting ultra-Orthodox men into the military, with the current stay on compulsory service for ultra-Orthodox Jews expiring on March 31st. The move might anger Netanyahu's ultra-Orthodox supporters in the parliament, who helped form the coalition that has given the prime minister a narrow majority. Deepavaz, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Whiteout blizzard conditions are forecast for portions of Northern California and Nevada. It's expected to bring hurricane force wind gusts at higher elevations. Yesterday, officials issued a warning for high avalanche danger for the central Sierra Nevada mountains. Bob Oravec, lead forecaster with the National Weather Service in College Park, Maryland, projects as much as eight feet of snow, of snowfall that is, by the time the weekend is over. Anywhere in the uh, Sierra and get to Tahoe, there's going to be huge impacts with respect to the snow. There'll be very heavy snow across the air, measured in the feet range. So anytime you get that kind of snow totals, and there's going to be a lot of wind with it also. There are blizzard warnings out through much of the Sierra. So travel will be pretty much impossible. That's Bob Oravec, lead forecaster with the National Weather Service. You're listening to NPR News. A simple new test measuring the presence of climate change on screen is being piloted on the nominated feature films at this year's Academy Awards. NPR's Chloe Veltman reports the climate reality check is based on the famous on a famous test which looks at the representation of women on screen. Oscar nominees Barbie, Nyad and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 all passed the new climate reality check. It's going to be a shooting war. It's going to be a ballistic war over a rapidly shrinking ecosystem. It's going to be a war for the last of our dwindling energy, drinkable water, breathable air. Created by the storytelling consultancy Good Energy and Colby College in Maine, the test measures whether climate change is present in a movie's plot and whether at least one character shows awareness of it. Movies also need to be set on Earth in the present or future to be considered. These rules disqualify more than half of the 31 features up for Academy Awards in 2024, including stories set in the past like Killers of the Flower Moon, with its important message about the dangers of fossil fuels. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Well, U.S. stocks are trading higher this hour as markets consider the latest snapshot of an inflation gauge favored by the Federal Reserve. Increased three-tenths of a percent from December to January, up from a tenth of a percent the previous month. Prices were up just 2.4 percent from a year earlier. That's down from that 2.6 annual, uh, 2.6 percent annual pace in December. The Dow is up 38 points. S&P's risen 20. The Nasdaq is up 98 points. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News. Oscar. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Fisher Investments. Fisher's dedicated team of specialists provide resources on investing, retirement income, estate planning, and more. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss.
From Illinois Public Media, this is The 21st Show. I'm Brian Mackey. And it's time for our Reporter Roundtable, where we talk about what's making news across the 21st state. In today's roundtable, we're going to be talking about Macomb and Galesburg, as well as Bloomington Normal. Joining us now is Jane Carlson, regional reporter for Tri-State's Public Radio, whose stations include WIUM-FM in Macomb. Jane, welcome back to the 21st Show. Thanks, Brian. Good to be here. Also with us, Lindsay Jones, a reporter at WGLT, Bloomington Normal Public Radio. Lindsay, welcome back to the 21st Show to you as well. Good morning. Thank you. So, Jane, I want to begin with you, and there is a judge. This is pretty rare. There's a judge in Adams County who is being removed uh, from from service by the Illinois Courts Commission. What happened there? Well, Robert Adrian, uh, he's been an Eighth Circuit judge since 2010, was removed from the bench last week by the Illinois Courts Commission, and his judicial misconduct stems from a sexual assault case in Adams County. So he was uh, presiding over a bench trial in the fall of 2021, and he found an 18-year-old guilty of sexual assault of a 16-year-old. But then at the sentencing in January of 2022, um, he did acknowledge that um, there was a mandatory prison sentence uh, for that crime, but he said he wasn't going to sentence him. He said that he thought um, the 18-year-old had served enough time in county jail, so he reversed the conviction and said he was not guilty. The second thing in that case was shortly after he reversed the conviction, um, he threw a prosecutor out of his courtroom because the prosecutor had liked a Facebook post that was critical of that decision. So the third instance there was that um, the Judicial Inquiry Board found that Adrian um, lied um, during uh, questioning about the the, previous, the first two incidents. Hmm. Interesting. It's it's pretty rare, as I mentioned, that, that a judge would be removed here. Um, what what happens next now? Is so? Is there there's a vacancy in the county bench, so to speak? They have appointed a Calhoun County judge to take up Adrian's docket, and Adrian says he's retiring. He's retiring. Interesting. All right. Uh, well, that is a that is a fascinating case. Uh, Lindsay Jones, let me bring you into the conversation now. Uh, you have covered the uh, growing insurance market that focuses on the risks associated with carbon capture technology and storage. This is something we've talked about on the program before. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting to note that there are two industries kind of attempting to and actually growing concurrently. And so as developers have an increased interest in pursuing these carbon capture and storage projects, they're also looking to mitigate any any risks associated with that, whether that is a financial risk or that's an environmental risk. And so insurance markets um, on a larger scale have seen these commercial opportunities and they have sort of been able to position themselves to offer their services as kind of that intermediary. And I spoke with a representative from one of um, um, one of the largest um, global brokerages and risk management associations, Marsh in New York City, and he mentioned that these insurance companies are actually going to play kind of a crucial role in helping some of these developers meet their regulatory obligations. So whether that's the EPA or any other um, state or federal regulatory authorities that they have to answer to, those insurance companies are going to be set to help them navigate through that. And so just thought that that was an interesting parallel um, of two industries growing at the same time. Yeah. And I guess like, so homeowners are just, are they finding the, I mean, is this applying to individuals or is this more of a, a business level or, or where is this actually being felt, this difficulty finding insurance? So I think that I think that the growth of the market is is more commercially oriented and it's more about those those commercial developments. But what prompted my interest in this was attending some some county level um, um, public hearings on a proposed carbon storage project in our area in central Illinois. And there was a, a landowner, a property owner who said that when she considered having a well put on her land, her insurance company would no longer cover her property, that they told her that, and she provided provided a letter speaking to that. And it was difficult to to pinpoint to what extent that is a common problem. I don't I don't think that it turned out to be for for everyone, but um, it is possible, according to the representative I spoke to from Marsh, that perhaps as these projects grow. Um, we'll see kind of that market trickle down. 
Jane, I want to come back to you now. Uh, and I guess this is in a somewhat related vein because it's an environmental story. But there is a lake, a popular lake around Galesburg that uh, water access has had to close to after a fuel spill. What happened there? Well, Lake Story is a city-owned lake, and adjacent to it is a property that used to be the state-operated animal disease lab, but that closed in 2017, and the property became state surplus property owned by, the, by Central Management Services. But on February 8th, uh, workers in the area of the lake and this property, um, Galesburg Sanitary District workers, discovered that there was a leak of red dye diesel coming from the generator at this property, and it was leaking into a storm drain then into a creek, and then to the outfall of Lake Story. So information about this was pretty sparse at first. The city did acknowledge the leak, CMS did acknowledge the leak, but it felt like there was not a lot of detail about the impact. Um, uh, how far did it get? Um, there's been a contractor on site since the day after, but when I got some documents from the Illinois EPA, that, that started to come into focus a little bit more. Um, this generator had no operational purpose, um, it wasn't doing anything. It was just sitting there, and when it malfunctioned, um, the fuel had been leaking for some time to make it that far to the lake, and they did find oil sheen past um, the outfall of Lake Story that had migrated further into the lake, and that's when the city decided they were going to close water access. It is a relatively small leak, less than a couple hundred gallons, but the response to it has been going on for three weeks now, and it's been pretty intense. Yeah, I thought that was a unique aspect of this. It's not like this was just detected by doing sampling. You could actually see or they could see like that sort of rainbow film that anyone who's, you know, done boating or something like that is can be familiar with where you actually have fuel in the water visible. Yes, there was sheen in, in several parts of the lake. And the response to it, like I said, there have been river, le river level booms, creek level booms, hundreds of... Um, of different booms in different parts of the lake. They've removed at least 12,000 gallons of water and fuel. So again, the response has been really thorough, um, but just um, a really unique situation that this is kind of a property that's not used and this happened. Is this is this drinking water or is it more of just a recreational lake? It's recreational. Yeah. It actually was built by the railroads in the 1920s um, to supply water for um, trains. And um, then it was it evolved into a recreational lake owned by the city. Hmm. All right. Well, let me remind listeners, this is the 21st show. We are beginning, as we do most Fridays, with our reporter roundtable talking about news from different parts of the state. Today we are focusing on Macomb and Galesburg with Jane Carlson, who is a reporter for Tri-States Public Radio, and Bloomington Normal with Lindsay Jones, who's a reporter for WGLT, the public radio station there. And Lindsay, let me come back to you uh, with some of your education stories you've been you've been covering lately. Uh, first, you found that it seems like online education is is very much here to stay. This is something that really had a, a big uptick after the pandemic. Uh, but but say more about that. What what is happening uh, in higher education in particular? Yeah, so I ended up reading a, a pretty interesting statistic in the Hechinger report, and it was this national statistic that said that like 53% of all college students had taken at least one online course um, in the past year. And that number was almost twice what it was pre-pandemic, um, fall of 2019. And so there's a number of implications from this. One is that those that online course offering continues to be persistent post-COVID, even though, you know, in-person options are very much more available now than they were back then. But then there's also an implication that, that colleges and universities are leaning into online options as, as a means of preemptively addressing a predicted enrollment cliff. And so that's a term for an expected drop in the number of high school graduates that started that's expected to start in 2025 and um, persist going forward. And that's due to lower birth rates from the Great Recession. And so something that a lot of universities and colleges are thinking about is, you know, what can we do to offset that? And so I found since Illinois State University is in our backyard, um, there's only a small percentage of ISU students who are taking at least one online course. It's like four or five percent. And so this is a relatively unexplored territory. And what they are looking at in order to offset a potential drop in the number of, of eligible high school students to come into college is to expand online course offerings. And so they're going to eventually, the plan is to create three new online only master's programs 
And there's a hope to expand adult education opportunities like micro-credentialing or other professional upskilling. And so the idea is kind of to, to offer more credit hour dollar options um, ahead of that projected drop in students. Hmm. Maybe there's a class I will be taking someday <laughs> through ISU. All right. One while we're while we are talking about ISU, there was another uh, d- sort of development there, and that is that tenure and tenure track faculty are officially unionized. What did it take to get to this point? What are the next steps uh, for the union? Yeah. So it was actually a years long effort to to get to that that final unionization. Um, organization started um, during the COVID years, and it was just a lot of on-the-ground, one-on-one conversations with with as many faculty members as possible. I know the, the union member that I spoke to um, said that they were very intentional at trying to reach as many as possible, and um, that, that culminated in recognition from the State Educational Labor Relations Board in January. Um, I believe it was just a couple of days ago the the faculty, the tenure track faculty union entered into its first round of negotiations with the university for its first ever contract. Um, They have a few subsequent negotiating sessions after that as well. And Jane, let me come back to you. Uh, And we, uh, McDonough County, I understand, is looking to build a new animal shelter there, but it, it needs to raise some money first. So what is the story there? It does. Well, the shelter is, of course, county operated um, and, you know, they, they pay the bills on this small building that's the current shelter and provide some staffing. But the Humane Society in McDonough County has really um, all volunteer run. It, it's really picked up a lot um, to make sure that the services the animals need are provided, um, medical procedures. Um, they're really in charge of promoting the adoptions, um, dealing with the cat population, things like that. And the building that they're in is about 40 years old. It's tiny. The kennels are falling apart. The cats are kind of shoved in a garage without socialization. So this group of volunteers um, has raised more than half of a $1 million goal to build a new shelter that's kind of more of the 21st century. The idea that it's better for the animals, but is also a better space for volunteers and for people who are going to adopt animals. It sounds like a pretty significant amount of money for an animal I shelter. So. Yeah, what what uh, do they have any interesting tactics they're planning to use uh, for for trying to raise that? Well, they have an event called Casino Night, um, which is not gambling <laughs> with real money, um, but it actually is a really unique fundraiser, and it's been really successful for them. Oh boy, taking me back to my uh, Catholic uh, school education there, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, Jane, I I also wanted to ask you, Jane, about a teacher in Monmouth, Monmouth Roseville District 238, say that three times fast, uh, who's who's getting some recognition. What, What can you tell us about her? Yes, Sarah Mendez was named uh, the State Board of Education's Bilingual Teacher of the Year. Um, So I went and visited her. Uh, She teaches a eighth grade language development class in the Monmouth Roseville School District, which is a really unique district. It's a consolidated district, um, part farming, part small community. It has about 1,600 students, but nearly one in five is an English language learner. So um, one of the things that was most interesting was talking to Sarah about how bilingual education has evolved in that district, where 15 years ago, she was primarily working with Spanish-speaking students who had intermediate language skills. And now in this district, 25 different languages are spoken. Um, There are 20 different birth countries. And just since the start of winter break, the district has welcomed students from Guatemala, Mexico, Guinea, Malaysia, and Yemen. That is fascinating. And this is, I mean, to to emphasize this point, this is a pretty rural district, right? Small towns, you said. It is. I mean, Monmouth is about 9,000 and Roseville is about 900. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. All right. Uh, Jane Carlson is a reporter with WIUM Tri-States Public Radio. And Lindsay Jones is a reporter at WGLT, Bloomington Normal Public Radio. Thank you both so much for being with us today on The 21st Show. Thank you. Thank you. And I will mention, you know, here we would love to hear what you think about what we've been talking about on the 21st show, be it today's program or anything from the recent past. If you liked it, if you didn't like it, if you think we got something right or wrong for whatever reason, you can always leave us a voicemail anytime at 217-300-2121. That's 217-300-2121. 
anytime, day or night, 217-300-2121. We will be sharing some of your responses on air from time to time. You can find that number and our email address and every other way to contact us on our website, 21stshow.org. Also like to mention, coming up on Monday's program, we're going to be talking about crime and perception. Government numbers show violent crime has been dropping significantly, but people still think crime is on the rise. We're going to dig into those numbers and why they don't always move public opinion. Plus, a bird native to Hawaii is on the verge of extinction with just a handful left in the wild. Why are we talking about that here in Illinois? Well, there's a researcher from Central Illinois who's working to save the Akekiki bird from becoming another footnote in history. Coming up here on the 21st show, President Trump has been removed from the ballot, although that court order was stayed. We're going to be talking about that case, as well as our look at national politics in our political roundtable. It's all coming up after a short break. This is the 21st show. Stay with us. Scientists have just wrapped a detailed study of a crucial glacier in West Antarctica which holds back a giant sheet of ice, and they say they have a clearer picture of future sea level rise. I think we have uh, been able to get a better forecast for uh, what's likely to come out of Antarctica over the next uh, century or so. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today at 3 on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. Hi, I'm Elsa Chang. Everyone has a story to tell. I am so grateful that curiosity guided me here to NPR, where new voices and different lived experiences are valued. None of this would be possible without listeners who invest in careful reporting, in stories that feed our curiosity. Public radio gives all of us so much. Here's how you can give back. Fund public radio for the public good with your contribution at WGLT.org. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Go to npr.org app to listen to WGLT and NPR on your time. This is The 21st Show. I'm Brian Mackey. And a judge from Illinois made headlines across the nation this week after she ruled that former President Donald Trump should be taken off the ballot for the upcoming primary election. Illinois is the third state where Trump has been deemed ineligible. To talk more about the ruling and what it means, we are joined now to begin our Friday Politics Roundtable by Brendan Moore, the Illinois government and politics reporter for Lee Enterprises Newspapers, which has the Herald and Review in Decatur, the Panagraph in Bloomington, and the Post-Dispatch in St. Louis. Brendan, welcome back to the 21st Show. Glad to be back, Brian. So this case revolves around the 14th Amendment. We had a long discussion on this uh, a few weeks back, but uh, the 14th Amendment and Trump's role in the January 6th Capitol insurrection, and that is actually the name of the clause, the insurrection clause. Can you just remind us what that says, how that applies to this case that we're talking about today? Right. So basically the uh, 14th Amendment was one of these uh, Reconstruction Amendments uh, that came after the Civil War, and it was put in place to essentially prevent uh, former uh, Confederates from from returning to office uh, post Civil War. Uh, so basically, it, it says that if if you you know commit insurrection, you tried to overthrow the government, uh, you shouldn't serve in office. And obviously, this relates to uh, former President Trump because. Uh, uh, the January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol uh, that many would call an insurrection. Uh, and many believe he had a hand in inciting that. And so you have uh, several cases around the country of 
um, groups trying to knock the former president and current uh, Republican candidate uh, off the ballot in 2024, uh, citing that amend uh, that insurrection clause under the 14th Amendment. Yeah. And, you know, that's an interesting point, because I think that often when you see the talking points that, that people put out about these things, you, you heard this from the Freedom Caucus here in Illinois, that this is a liberal judge, Cook County judge. But I mean, this is a case that, that came up through the system, the same case that was before the State Board of Elections a month or two ago, right? Right. So basically, uh, this came before the State Board of Elections in, in January, uh, and they ruled unanimously that... Uh, Basically, it was not it was not essentially that they didn't think that Trump didn't commit insurrection is that they just did not think they had the authority to make that judgment. And they thought a court was a better venue for that. Um, and obviously, the uh, the judge in this case, a county circuit judge, uh, found that they they erred in, in, in not removing him from the ballot. Um, uh, but uh, obviously now uh, it's going to work its way through the court system um and you know because obviously the ruling happened but a stay was was immediately placed on it and uh you know now it's gonna a stay remains uh until a higher court uh gives some resolution on this question what was the uh what was the judge's reasoning here you know the judge uh in the in, in, in tossing him from the ballot, uh, she basically cited the uh, body of evidence that was presented in the case that went before the Colorado Supreme Court um, that uh, basically uh, the uh, they outlined the, uh, uh, the challengers in that case outlined um, the former president's role on January 6th and, and uh, the court there deemed that uh, it was enough evidence to show that, that the former President Trump engaged in insurrection and should be tossed from the ballot. Um, so the judge used that framework and the analysis also from the hearing officer in the State Board of Elections to uh, come to the conclusion that the former president engaged in insurrection. Uh, obviously, that's up for interpretation. Uh, the case in Colorado is now before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, or arguments were heard in February and a ruling there is expected soon. And that could render this challenge here in Illinois moot as well, uh, presuming that the question uh, that is addressed is, uh, relates to the 14th Amendment. Um, so we will see uh, kind of how it plays out in the coming weeks. But uh, uh, um but the former president does remain on the ballot in Illinois uh, until, you know, as long as that stays in place. And um, the courts don't always move very quickly. So uh, it, it appears like he will be on the ballot when uh, voters go to the polls on March 19th. What reactions have you been hearing to this ruling? I think it's the pretty typical reaction of uh, uh, Republicans obviously are outraged. Uh, they would call it inter election interference. Um, several put out statements basically saying they stand with President Trump. Um, and uh, uh, but obviously you have uh, folks that agree that, you know, they you know, we all saw what happened on on January 6, 2021. And, um, you know, and, and, and many believe that it, you know, the the uh, body of evidence is clear that that the former president played a, a large role in 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 that uh, tragic day. Um, although there there are Democrats that I would say that are that are a little bit more moot on this because um, many believe that the former president should be beaten at the ballot box and not uh, disqualified based on um, a a Civil War era uh, uh, clause in an amendment. Um, so, uh, a lot of outrage on the Republican side, but, uh, um, but obviously again, he remains on the ballot for now. So, um, I guess, uh, it just more, uh, campaign fodder for, at least for the time being.
Yeah, and you know that is that is a point worth emphasizing. So the judge, uh, Judge Porter, did put a hold on her decision, so this doesn't change anything for the ballot. You know, there was another point I saw somewhere that that I thought was interesting, which is you know the real vote for president in Illinois are the ones cast for delegates at the conventions, mm-hmm. not the actual name at the top of the ticket. Can you talk more about that aspect of this? Right. So. Obviously, when voters go, and I should say when they go to the polls, uh, many have already gone to the polls because early voting has been open since February 8th. Um, but you vote on delegates that you send to the uh, 